WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. R&D in the QC, episode 70. We have a special guest, Brandon Pierce. We talk about District Attorney Spencer Merriweather and Kerr Putney's visit, Affordable Housing Trust Fund asks, and the show Mars lease. That's right, folks. Episode 70. A lot of people said it couldn't be done. With me, as always, the trusty one. A lot of people said episode two couldn't. We would never get to episode two. A lot of people. Look at us now. Look at us now. We're about to get to episode 70. We're in the middle of it, in fact. And you know what else is really special about episode 70, Larkin? What? This, it's not about Brandon Pierce joining us. It is. That is super special. You're super lucky. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Get ready for the R&D and the QC bump. This is a big deal for you. Huge deal. But we have surpassed 40,000 listeners. Incredible. Incredible feat of just two regular council people. Just doing our thing. Now, unquestionably, the number one local politics podcast in Charlotte, North Carolina. Easily. Hands down. Possibly the state. Yes. Because I don't think anyone else hosts one. I agree. So great. So listen, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Brandon Pierce. Brandon Pierce. Uh, Brandon Pierce, you are about to unleash upon this city uh, an announcement uh, a hellfire to... like has never been yes. seen. You're going to be down at the Board of Elections. Tell the listeners, the over 40,000 out there, uh, what what you got going on, man. Yeah, so first off, thank y'all for letting me be on here. Mm. Um, it's my personal mission to make sure that that number is 50,000 after this, okay? Bingo. Uh, thank you. That's going to be a hard task. I think maybe you should you focus might... on the election. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if that's your top priority, I have a bad feeling for you. It took us a while to get to this point. I really think you should focus on the election. Well, I'll say this. Um, thank you again for the introduction. Yeah. Uh, for everyone who does not know, my name is Brandon Pierce, and I... Uh, on Wednesday, I will be a proud candidate for Charlotte City Council District Four. District. Four. Now there's a lot. That's the uh, Popcorn Phipps that's District. The Phipps District. Uh, and he's he's leaving. There's a lot of people running in District Four. There's something a little bit different about you, and and that is that you will not be, uh, presumably, not be in a primary in September. Why is that? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, let me see how my campaign manager wants me to answer this. I'm kidding. Um, you know, so <laughs> to your point. There's no one else in the room, ladies and gentlemen. It's just the three of us. Um, so anyways, yeah. I didn't so, really get that joke, Brandon. <laughs> so anyway, so running for Charlotte City Council, but it's unique in my scenario because um, while um, everybody will be in a primary, uh, as a conservative candidate who believes in pragmatic solutions, I will not have a primary. So I'm looking forward to using the next few months to kind of, you know, again, continue to learn the district and, and uh, and grow with the people and understand them uh, while everyone else engages in the primary. For anyone else who didn't pick up on that, he's a Republican. <laughs> and he's filing he's... as a Republican and will <laughs> presumably not have a Republican primary, but will be on the general election ballot in November. And District 4 is the northeast portion of the city. Uh, a lot of people know the university area. So tell us a little bit about what makes you, you think, unique to serve on Charlotte City Council. And tell me what you think about the fact that 
Um, aside from our incumbent Republicans, Mr. Bakari and Mr. Driggs. And you Mr. Might, Phipps. <laughs> well, honorary Republican Mr. Yeah. Phipps. Big shoes to fill. You <laughs> might be uh, – you know, there, there is a precedent for, for electing a cons- more conservative person there. That's true. Um, you might be the only other Republican on this ballot. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts about that and the uh, future of the Republican Party here in Charlotte? Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think the future is just fine. And uh, what kind of motivated me to run, I remember in 2017 uh, and 2018, just looking at all of the election results, right? I mean, I watch as our city, as our county, as all of the districts in the area, uh, it just went completely under one wave. Uh, and, I mean, we're pretty much governed by, you know, one party in the entire um, oh, You have city. to remind me, dude. I yeah. see it every day. Super minority. <laughs> and, and the one thing that I did like about, you know, uh, the left and the campaign that they ran in 2018 is super majorities are bad. I think we can all agree to that. And so what motivated me to run is I knew that we needed more balanced, pragmatic leadership. And let's be honest, you know, uh, both of you all can agree to this. But at this level, politics shouldn't be red and blue. It shouldn't be left and right. It should really be about the uplifting of the people. And that's what I'm focused on. Let me ask you a question, because you and I, we cross paths all the time in, in party related stuff and different functions like that. Um, for those of you out there in the, in the community who don't know you, you're a young black professional. Yes, sir. What's it like to be a black professional inside the Republican Party of the 16th largest uh, city in the country right now? That's a good question. You know, uh, is this a, like a super honest podcast? No, so, yeah, okay, this, right. Everything's super honest here. I mean, I, you know, no, no one it, it's it's because a lot of us talk all the time about the desire for bigger tent. You know, a lot of our principles, you know, they, they extend far beyond race, um, mm-hmm. color, sex, all kinds of things like that. But. It, you know, sometimes I feel like uh, it can it can be kind of lonely at times, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, I'll just give it to you honestly. Yeah, please. At, you know, at first I hated it. Um, I, I remember when I made the switch. You know, I I wrestled with it for a long time. When was time. that? Uh, 2015. Um, and I wrestled with it for a long time. In 2015, I was a hardcore libertarian. You couldn't tell me anything, okay? Um, and nice. I realized. <laughs> thank you, See, yeah. Larkin was like, "Would you switch from Democrat?" See, <laughs> that was racist right there. You just did something racist, Larkin. <laughs> I just didn't know there were any libertarians in this town. <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> I, I thought it was just Jeff Scott. <laughs> To be fair, you were sitting there on your high horse. When did you leave us, friend? (laughs) To be fair, I I was a Democrat before I was a Libertarian. See, (laughs) to be fair, uh, I went again. To to be fair, so now Jeff Scott is once again the only Libertarian in town. And so, you know, again, I mean, Tarek ran against the Libertarian in his race in 2017. I did. I, did. I, love, I love Libertarians. Yeah. Continue. Well, I'm happy I made the switch. Um, you know, I'll be honest. You are right. It gets lonely sometimes. I remember when I made the switch and I announced it, it was during the Trump era, right? You all remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live it every day in Charlotte. And it was just the craziest thing having friends, family. I got one of one of my homies, like, I, I mean, one of my best friends ever. And I won't disclose his name. I mean, it's cool. Found- you can say homies, too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Not once you're a Republican. <laughs> you don't get to use it anymore. You can say homies. My best that was when he was a Democrat. I got to say that. <laughs> no. Tone it up. But anyways, I mean, you know, we, we, we don't... When he's in the Green Party, I'll call him a comrade. <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry. So I like you guys. One of your good friends. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, we don't even talk to this day like we used to. Yeah. Now, you know, there could be other things that change, but the, the 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 single hand thing that I can point to, and it happened a lot, is like when I became a Republican, I became isolated. I'll say that, you know, I didn't like it at first, but I do love it now because, again, um, and full disclosure, uh, you know, uh, my campaign manager will probably get me for this one. But, you know, I toured with the idea of running as an unaffiliate at first, hmm. right? I got bad news. It's really hard to get on the ballot. Yeah. It, it's very hard to get on the ballot. Uh, I think it would have been 1,200 signatures for my district. Um, but the reason why is because I am a conservative with conservative ideas. But I found out that in this time and in this day and era, people care more about your party affiliation than they do about your solutions mm. right and so people can get past the R. I was having real conversations with real people they were loving me and then as soon as they found out I was an R oh no and so you know that that was the biggest thing just that hurdle of that R in this city right uh and in this county but I know that together with good policies we can overcome it so I I think this is this is just my observation but I think a lot of the people that I talk to in terms of the questions they have for Republicans and what they really want to know about who they are and their character is not necessarily that you're a Republican or not. It's more so are you a Republican because of what the party used to, used to portray themselves as small government, things like that. Or is it that you believe in some of the things that, that people view the president is now espousing that are becoming more representative of, of what the Republican party looks like. I mean, do you, when you look at the president, is that what you see as the model of the Republican Party, or or do you have a different person that maybe upholds the standard that you believe in for the Republican or Party? Or do you get irritated when everyone tries to peg us all to the president all the time? Yeah, well, that's one thing. But I'll be honest, <laughs> it's I've, fair. But you, I mean, you can ask. Right. It's it's also a fair question to say. It's a fair question to ask. It's a fair question right? to say. Yeah. Is that what you believe? Are those the Republican values that believe, you believe, or are they the more old, traditional Republican values that that the party? used to seem to uphold. Yeah, so I'm going to answer that question a few ways. So the first thing that I'll say is that, you know, number one, I became a Republican because I wanted to handle issues a little differently, right? What motivated me to become a Republican is the way I was looking at compassionate politics, the way we handle things like poverty uh, and, and opportunity and things, right? I found out that the Republican platform was the best way to really help my people, if I'm being frank. Uh, I think some of the people who need conservative policies the most are the ones who don't get it. They're in the community, right? I mean, look at the communities I get. I'm going to use your district for an example, uh, Mr. Bakari. I mean, look at your district, dude. Like, you, you got one of the, like, the, the wealthiest districts, right? And how do they typically vote? Not saying that there's a direct correlation between the two, but they're always, it's typically the best served communities are the ones that have conservative ideas and conservative values. Nothing against the left here. I see Larkin with his face there. But to that point, I wanted to be able to bring those same policies to my community, right? I think that's I mean, that's absolutely. a chicken or an egg discussion no, no, that I mean, you have on another day. Yeah. The, the District 6 didn't become wealthy because... I, I, <laughs> said another way, though, I think that Usually in in top 20 cities today across the nation, the districts for municipal government that are in highest levels of poverty, I would almost bet you are 98 percent Democrat governed, which means you hear a lot more like we saw on the presidential stage of of what can we kind of give and incent and provide Right. Uh, um, The community to garner votes rather than what principles 
can we relay that solve problems? I mean, but it also shouldn't come as a surprise that people who I'm not have a higher, other higher net worth that, yeah, yeah. or who are business owners, maybe one of their top political priorities is going to be lower taxes on corporations or lower taxes on the wealthy. So, I mean, sure, sure. and I'm not saying that's what not, everybody's yeah, top priority yeah, is I, in the Republican I wouldn't Party. Make that argument, but, but, yeah. I do, but I do want to address that very quickly, right? And I agree with you, Larkin. The only thing I'll say is that when you look at, um, and let's just, let's just call it what it is. So, if you look at, let's say, um, you know, a non-minority, right? You can always bet pretty much for the most part in large numbers that they have people on both sides of the aisle fighting for them, right? They got white Republicans. They got white Democrats. They got everybody, right? I mean, it's just everybody, right? When you look on the minority side, typically the only minority elected officials I see are on the left. And I'm not saying anything is wrong with a Democratic elected official. Like Von Lyles is a Democratic mayor. She's probably one of my favorite politicians ever, right? Um, you know, Mark Jarrell is another one, right? Democrat. Love him, right? Nothing wrong with a black Democrat. That's not anything wrong. But what I am saying is it is wrong when that's the only people that, have, that represent point. us. We need, uh, yeah. we need people on both sides I would, of the aisle. I would love to see all political parties become more diverse. So yeah. I, I, I hope that some of what you're talking about is something that you can infuse into the, the mindset of the Republican Party more broadly because – Frankly, I think one of the pre reasons, and again, I know that it's it, at times it's not fair well, on, to bring it all back to the president. Infused into the Republican <laughs> Party may not be the right way to say that. No. Or another way you could Infuse- say is mainstream media who constantly beats us down and makes it not cool, literally not in millennial there. worlds today or in any college campus, to even mention the fact that you're a Republican or you better bristle up, put your... Your dukes up and get ready to. to uh, but if you, you don't, bullied. if you yeah, don't you see, get bullied, man, absolutely. I, I know. I feel certainly whole agree that it shouldn't be hard to understand why a lot of people of color would be averse to joining the Republican Party, even if they believed in their policies, because there are groups that have co-opted the Republican Party as if, and again. You know, it's it's the. Does Bernie Sanders represent all your views? No. Right. So there are groups that have but, co-opted but Ber- both parties. But Bernie Sanders, the things that he represents that that don't necessarily resonate with me are not at the same degree of of atrociousness to me that racism should be to certain people. And you look at whether it's, it's white supremacy or whatever. That again, it, I'm not saying Republicans at all all represent those values but all of those people claim to be conservative they claim I think, I think, they vote for donald trump I know so your, i know your point there it's and, the square rectangle it's, rectangle it's, square there thing. are people out there in the republican party who are absolutely against being inclusive yeah. i don't think it's a large majority no. i don't think it's a large majority i think there's probably the same number of them as there are democrats doing weird stuff over on the other side but I, i'll tell you i i just but if just, democrats were were I don't know. I think I think when you get in, and I, I don't want to get. It's I want to talk more about Brandon's yeah, campaign, yeah, yeah. but all right, we did digress. But I do right, think that right. when you look at a group of white supremacists, for instance, and they're wearing Trump hats, that it would be easy as a person of color to go, well, even if I believed the fiscal policies and the whatever, how in the world could I associate with that group? And again, that's painting with a broad brush, but it's an easy way to see people being turned off. Yeah. Well, and and and, this, and and as Republicans, we have to own that. Let me let me be clear when I say we have to own that. It's because of our party. So when you look at our party, me, me and my friends, we talk about this all the time, right? When you look at our party, it's more like, dude, all right, individuals doing individuals. They commit a crime, yo, like, lock them up, whatever, right? It's pretty much like you, you, we, we accept pretty much everyone, right? It's very it's a very inclusive party. Um, Wait, we, which one? <laughs> you heard me, the Republican Party. It is. It's a very it inclusive party. That, so that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that... We have people charging in the door that right. are of, of diverse looking and feeling and sounding. Right. But I would tell you the people that I'm around and I hang around, 
they are like that. They they look when they see someone like Brandon, they're yeah. like, let's huddle around this yeah. guy. This is what we've been talking the, about. Well, yes. and I applaud the people who want to have more diversity in the party. But the optics of a Republican convention or a Republican rally or a Republican, you take a picture of Congress and all the Republican members of Congress, and it's not only all white people; it's basically all guys. And so then you well, take a, a picture of the Democrats in Congress, and it looks like it's America. A, it's a, it, ten years ago, I would have said the problem is our outreach and how we do it. Now it's a mixture of our outreach. And literally and <laughs> all the forces that are working against us. I mean, the forces that are working against us. You would think that that when it's it's like uh, it's like how the police feel sometimes. This you're is, about to this make is an bad, analogy. Bad analogy. Here we go. Tarek has a thing with analogies like, where he like loves them, but he's feel. bad we're at like, them. We're like we're like when when I do something right, nobody knows about it. But when any officer, one out of five thousand, does something wrong, we all did something yeah. wrong. All right, Brandon's not running for Congress. What do you want to do in District 4? What are the unique issues to District 4 that are going to be your focus if you're elected? Uh, And what are the reasons that people should give you a serious look in November against uh, whoever your opponent ends up being? Mm. All right, I'll address the latter first um this election right it is i am running as a republican in a heavily democratic district but this will be a historic flip this election is winnable and and it has everything to do with the amazing team that i assembled i have one of the best teams you will ever meet i know you both are like yeah we got good teams too but no Mm, seriously like like look (laughs) man look we are a wolf pack of one look we all met all of the volunteers and interns met like you know we all met up at um at um at the um at the uh, Armory Cow. Um, And so, you know, it was a great time there. But when we took the picture, it was so many different people of all backgrounds, of all races. There was unaffiliates at the table. We had Democrats at the table who knew that this was bigger than party. I'm telling you, this election is going to be won because of my diverse team. They are amazing, and they believe so in what me. So how do you deploy in those team members, and what, what is your – how do you win? How does a Republican win that district? So for any young candidate out there or somebody that's looking to run in the future, if you're going to hire a campaign manager or a strategist, hire someone that can show you the people who are going to vote for you and i made that mistake early on but i but i learned it and so i have a campaign manager and a um and a, uh, and a strategy person that has counted the votes and i have their names i have their addresses i know who i'm going to contact and i know how i'm going to reach Ooh, i know this part this is my plug here um for those of you all who believe in me the way i'm going to reach them is through donations so www.changecharlotte.com it's Change Charlotte? You I can't believe it. that, that wasn't taken. <laughs> hey, I'm good at this. Like, I'm w- good at w- this. W- uh, Charlotte. Charlotte. Gov? <laughs> like, wait, you stole our website. All right, so you said how you're going to win, which yeah, is a yeah, very I mean, important part because it's, it doesn't matter what you want to do if you can't actually get into office. But what do you want to do if you get into office? Yeah. What is important in District 4? What do you see as the priorities? Like I came in, yeah. champion police. Larkin came in, changed the way we eat food here at, at, <laughs> at the council dinners. Thank what you will so much your, for that. What will your thing be? And, and, and like my campaign team had to contain me because you can't do it all, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had to focus. So what we decided is that, right, progress requires sustainable communities, safe communities, and affordable communities. That sustainability one, I know a lot of people use it as an eco-friendly buzzword, and it does have some uh, environmental-related stuff in there. But, I mean, sustainable communities is about really bringing back jobs, the focus of jobs, right? Which, let's 
give kudos where kudos are due. Uh, you all are doing amazing work on that. Thank you. Uh, thank you. You're thank welcome. You. Um, and, you know, it's also about right transportation. There's there's places in my district where they don't have the same opportunity. Did, y- did y'all did y'all know that Hidden Valley is in D four? I did actually. You, you did not because yeah. it's right across the street okay. from my district. A lot That's of people don't focus. A lot of people don't focus on that. Um, here's something else that I really like. I'm a big fan of public private partnerships. Right. Mm. I know if you talk to Tracy, that's all she says every five minutes, right? Public private partnerships. That's sustainable communities. And here's the biggest deal. I just stopped um Councilman uh, Councilwoman uh, Ajmer uh, in the hallway. Like that environmental piece at the local level is one of the most important things we can do. I'm a big fan of uh, the innovation barn that's coming out uh, in the 2020 budget, right? Where we're going to be sending all of our waste there to find out how we can reuse it and reduce it. That's an important thing. And so I would like to see from a sustainable community standpoint that we start to play that role. If people are doing business in our um, city, if developers are building, how about we incentivize them to go green? That's the easy solution. Um, it's safe communities. We've heard this one all the time. So I'm not going to, you know, go too much in detail. But here's the footprint of that. We need more foot patrol officers. Um, and, you know, I know that that wasn't originally an idea that was always championed by conservatives. But, again, politics at this level shouldn't be red or blue, right? And so foot patrol officers are the boots on the ground. Now, if you talk to the chief, he'll tell you, we don't have enough officers. So that's the second thing. How do we you recruit? Talk to anybody, they'll tell you that. Yeah, right. How do we recruit more officers? That's a big deal. And then last but not least, affordable communities. That's easy. we got to diversify our zoning process, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and, the, uh, and the planning director, uh, Tawo, is already in the works of that uh, with the UDO and, and even uh, TOD and uh, uh and all of that stuff that's already in works in the comprehensive plan. And then we've also got to look at innovative solutions, right? What are those innovative solutions? Is it um, is it the uh, tiny homes? I'm not saying that we should force people to go live in tiny homes, but that's an example of diversifying the housing Larkin market. Larkin would probably force them to do that, though. <laughs> I like Shame tiny homes. Shame and, he likes forcing, and he likes forcing people to do stuff. People in my district would opt to live in tiny homes. Opt in? Yeah, man. But, right. but what Give I hope people you the option. But what I hope people and your listeners hear from that platform is listen, like I know people are not in their heads right now. They're like, wait, he's a what? But it's not about left and right. It's not about Democrat and Republican. It's about solutions. And with Mr. Phipps retiring, we need someone that's going to come in and give solutions. We can't afford to lose another Republican. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, I think well said. I think maybe we should plan to do just like we did for uh, the other district is have a round of uh, of uh, we'll, we'll, we'll likely do a primary. Interview. We'll uh, probably do a primary interviews before September, and then we'll have the winner of the Democratic primary yeah. back on with you. Yeah, um, sometime in October and November. Yeah, Can I get a primary like interview. Or, or is this it? No, no, no. no this, this is, is yeah. it. This is it. Well, I mean, no, no. Maybe if you get a primary opponent, <laughs> it seems unlikely. Yeah. So, it seems highly um, unlikely, but we'll see. Yeah, so once once we've determined who your opponent will be, and we'll uh, we'll do a round robin with the folks, and that'll be a long episode because I think there's four, five, six people running in that six, race. Six. But um, once it's been whittled down in September, we'll get you back on here and we'll let you uh, we'll let you go head to head with them. It'll, it'll probably be the only general election uh, that we'll even have to, to do an episode on. Yeah. Oh no, oh, yours incorrect. <laughs> yeah, I, I was forgot like, yeah. you. Hate- no, no. In fact. Well, good. Listen, thanks for coming and joining us, man. Uh, we really, uh, really appreciate it. And as we look out in the audience at all of our meetings, you're almost at all of them. So you're, you're definitely doing putting the work in. Yeah, it, it, I do appreciate the fact that you have engaged in the work before uh, you decided to run because yeah. uh, 
a lot of people kind of dive in head first without looking um, to even assess the landscape in front of them before. My favorite uh, debate question, like like a structured debate, is when they go around and say, how many of you have been to a city council meeting? And That's always awkward. there's a couple That's people awkward. that are like, uh, so they either lie or yeah. count? they definitely have been <laughs> With respect to y'all's time, can I just address that very quickly? What motivates me to do this and put in the work beforehand is because I understand, number one, that the issues that plague my district are are in such a demand that we can't have a learning curve, right? We got to be able to come in on that job. And there's there's no such thing as job ready. City council is a hard job. And you're learning as you go, but yeah. you need to Shorten know what's the happening. learning curve as much as exactly. possible. Oh, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And then the second thing is, right, like with the amount of work that staff does, I don't want to come behind and have them redoing things that they've already done. I want to know what's done. I know the budget like the back of my hand because it's important that the ideas of my platform mirror what's already been done. And how do I improve on that? That's what I want the city council candidates to be doing as well. That's good, man. Strong work. Well, thanks we appreciate for being you coming here, on. Appreciate it. We'll look forward to having you back in uh, in October. And uh, wish you a good evening. All right, buddy. Take care. We'll talk to you. So, Larkin, uh, let's, uh, let's finish with uh, – our topics. What do we got to talk about? Well, I thought you might want to give a plug to your uh, your July Fourth parade before we get into the oh the meeting. July Fourth parade Charlotte's Charlotte's very own. Yeah, there's a there's a D uh, a D five D six battle going on. on Who's got the best July Fourth? Well, I don't think it's a battle as no. much as you know the the folks in D five did a cute little parade and uh, that was nice. I heard about it, but D six we did one and we did it right. We had David Britt singing songs. We had John Beard lining up a couple classic cars. It was wonderful. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Um, tonight's meeting, just a couple of highlights, one of which was, as everybody's, I'm sure, well aware, we have had a, a – last year we had a bit of an aberration um, to the good in terms of our crime rate, murder rate. This year we've we've – trended the other direction and it's it's higher than usual there have been a lot of questions as to what we can do about that some of that's just random and actually the district attorney tonight he and the police chief Kerr Putney came to talk to us and Spencer Merriweather the district attorney said look a lot of it's just luck he said sometimes you really need to be looking more broadly at the amount of shootings that you have in your city because um, one bullet one inch one way is the difference between a homicide and and, uh, And and an injury right so uh, he said, we really need to be looking at this more broadly because it's hard to make much determination simply off a, a homicide number each year. But it's still He also said it's, it's still it's, distressing. It's up uh, in its around entirety the around the country. But what were your thoughts? I mean, they both talked a lot and I think very eloquently about both the problem, what they see as solutions, some of which are already underway, some of which they are asking for help with. One of which um, I turned to one of our, our staff people who works with uh, the two of us on the intergovernmental relations and said, let's get uh, someone from the district attorney's office in our next intergovernmental meeting yes. because there was an ask made by district attorney Merriweather that we go and really start to have conversations at the state level about the needs that they have in the court system. It's not just that the DA's office is understaffed. It's that the courts are understaffed. And even if we get the DA's where they need to be, there's not the capacity in the courts to hear the cases. So that's something that, that you and I can hopefully take on, but what else stuck out to you in those conversations? Yeah. I I mean, I just, I think that of, well, one, the DA Spencer, who we know, and you know, very well, I know I've gotten to know pretty well. um, He's a great speaker. 
I, I, didn't, I didn't realize like how like I, I think that's the first time I've really sat down and listened to him without a single note in front of him just just burn through that I don't know that he speech. aspires to to this but uh I would absolutely love to see him be the the state level attorney general one day yeah I, I thought that was great um I uh I, I I really liked the way that he said just a term that really kind of helped me visualize it all is we're playing small ball right and um I, and I think that particularly we always look to uh, CMPD because it's the thing we control. It's the closest boots on the ground to the problem. And we say, all right, how can we, hey, chief, what are you doing? How can we beef this up? How can we do this or that? And when in fact, one chief and CMPD do an amazing job with what they're, what they're presented with. And two, they are one cog in a broader system. And that system has choke points and funnel points, uh, particularly what's going on in the court systems right now. That literally, you know, nothing's going to be solved unless we have a systemic uh, solution and approach to all of this. So I think that um, that that this, you know, going from small ball and how things were done many decades ago to making that shift now and figuring out how to how to make the case to our partners in the General Assembly, particularly, but in some other areas as well, that. You know, this is something that benefits the entire region. It's not just rural versus urban or anything like that, um, that that presents challenges. How we go about presenting that, I think, will be the 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 magic to the approach, because you and I have had many trips to Raleigh and um, the, the the difference in view of what a rural part of North Carolina versus an urban part of North Carolina representative um, feels and thinks about that is very, very different. So we've got to figure out how to solve that and then. Um, you know, the chief said it's a it's a health issue, which it absolutely is. And we just have to have a better partnership with the county. I mean, it's our paths cross so many different ways over this topic, yet we, we don't work together the way we should. Yeah, there's a thousand things that impact what ultimately ends up being our crime rate. Um, and we probably have to have touch points on all of those. Um, you know, it, the courts thing is one that sticks out to me, though, because when when we talk about the state budget, usually the things that come up are like expanding Medicare. I mean, expanding Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, we talk about teacher salaries. And I mean, there's a couple of hot button issues, healthcare, education that generally come up and they say, Oh, they're getting cut or they're getting funded more money, less money, whatever. Um, but there's a whole probably list of thousands of things that either get um, more or less money than they should. And we don't talk about those. And so we, we rarely, very rarely would ever pick up a paper and see something about the state budget and how it's impacting the court system. But what the district attorney was telling us tonight is that a lot of these judges are in Charlotte for three days, and then have to go elsewhere for two days to deal with the caseload in another County, for instance. And Charlotte really needs people hearing those cases five days a week. So something as simple as that, that no one would imagine that the 16th biggest city in the country has judges who are having to leave town and go hear cases elsewhere. Cause clearly we have I want the to volume drill into that because that's surprising to me. I mean, what, how, how is there higher volumes of caseloads in other counties than ours? Well, I don't think they're higher. I think there's just not the, they don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the judges have to hear judges them there. Well, I don't know, or they don't have enough. I mean, that that feels, it feels like our problem is that we don't have enough judges to handle our own stuff. How are we then giving our people away to another? Like, we need to really drill into why that is what it is. I, I take him at his word that there's some problem there, but, like, how did that come to be? Yeah, and, I mean, 
district attorney Merriweather is doesn't just spout off things sure. without yeah, no without doubt. knowing what he's talking about. But um, yeah, so it's just there's so many impacts. And just like our budget, there's so many things that don't get talked he's about. He's been but on the pod too, hasn't he? He has. He right. was on when he first was uh, elected. Uh, yes, I don't know if it was when he was first appointed or first elected, but um, we did have him on. We probably ought to have him on again. But he talked then. And I think it's it's close to coming to fruition. Talked about the Family Justice Center, mm. which um, I think will help a lot, particularly in the realm of some of the domestic some of the domestic violence that we've experienced in this community, which leads to some of the homicides. But they really pointed out tonight too that uh, so many of these homicides are uh, young men in their teens, twenties, and to some degree their thirties, and a lot of these are stemming from just what would generally be simple arguments. And we talked about it on flashpoint the other week, um, things that used to be a fist fight are now somehow resorting to a gunfight and you've got people being shot in a parking lot or shot, shot in an apartment complex over and chief used one example or, or Spencer did. I think they said in one case it was over like $5 that someone owed another person. Yeah. Um, which that shouldn't even be a fist fight, but it certainly shouldn't be something that is going to not only alter the life of the person on the receiving end of that bullet, but, the, the person whose life will never be the same for having that charge on their record of, of shooting someone or potentially killing someone. And um, so again, there's so many touch points to what turns into the crime rate, but we've got to give people um, a better toolkit in terms of how they, they deal with conflict. Yeah. I wonder how much so today's social media environment plays into these young kids. I'm just sitting here racking my brains. Like, What's different? What's got to like, think about when somebody was picking on you in in middle school, you got to leave and get away from it at least for 12 hours. It's not 24 seven. Four people saw this thing and said like, they know that, that maybe the amplification and you can't escape it for 12 hours. Right. You know, that that's, uh, that's an interesting thought. I'm I, and that just crossed my mind as it relates to conflict resolution, young people, what's different social media. Maybe there's some kind well, of that's certainly got to be why there, I mean, there's, there's been in many places an uptick in, in suicides and things like that. Are, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to think about that a little further because um, I bet you there's some merit there. Right. Cause people think about bullying and how it leads to suicide, but bullying also probably in many cases, especially with folks in their leads teenage to, years, to, I mean, it led to, these, led to one of those shootings right. in the school earlier this year. Right. So that it's not only leading to self-harm, but then, retaliation um yeah so again we it's it's a very multifaceted issue but i think that um i mean we've got two of the best people we could hope to have working on it in chief putney and district attorney merriweather i think we've got a role to play hopefully you and i can um get equipped with the information we need to go to raleigh and advocate for more support on the court side of things that we heard that was direly needed tonight Um, what else it was an interesting conversation we talked and we'll vote on this in two weeks, but we got a presentation from Pam Weidman, who's mm-hmm. the head of housing and neighborhood services tonight um, about a lot of the affordable housing deals that have been put forward and requested money from our housing trust fund. I thought that there were, and I don't have them in front of me, but I thought there was uh, some really great stuff in there in terms of the metrics that we're using to determine which deals we fund and which deals we don't. And then looking historically at in 2017 and 2018, um, these deals that we were funding were yielding like 400 some units, the deals that we looked at today, which in no way exhaust our housing trust fund. But, um, we talked about not only getting like more like 700 units, but 
the average cost per unit to the city and to our trust fund is more like 17,000 now where it used to be 30,000. So we're almost doubling the return on our investment in terms of cost per unit. And we've, we've got them spread throughout the city. One, several are in my district, but one's very close to yours. Um, they're in areas that we've not historically been able to get affordable housing. Several of them are NOAA projects. Um, some of them are, are leveraging at a, a infinitely higher rate than we'd historically been getting. And I think that while all of them were well-intentioned, we have a really good metric now to say which ones are better than others and which ones not only are we getting a good ROI from an absolute perspective on units versus dollars, but where are we putting people that they're near transit, that they're near job opportunities where there are pressures already in terms of gentrification. Uh, we can score those things now and see where we're putting people not only in a position to afford the house, uh, the roof over their head, but actually have opportunity to for upward mobility. Yeah, I um I hope that um I I I actually was very pleased with with kind of the work that had been done and presented to us tonight, particularly the point you made before. Four percent deals normally cost about thirty five thousand dollars a unit. Nine um, percent deals, the ones that are real competitive, which we only get a few of, are um are somewhere around twenty thousand dollars a unit. These were like it, when everything was said and done with all the new levers we had to pull just over $18,000 a unit. So we've definitely broken a record with how we've been able to leverage money. I think my concern is just back to the fundamental one I've laid out time and time again throughout the the last year uh, on this podcast, which is, you know, are we really making a dent in the problem overall? Or are we still feeding back into a model that while they are doing better um, and a better job for what they need to do, we're paying money into developers who profit off of this. And I, I, I'm not saying they profit off this as much as they do on other big deals that they might be involved in, but they aren't going to do this unless they profit off of it. And we're, we're just, we're, we're, we're chucking off a, a, a thousand here and a thousand there uh, of units. And we're, we're facing at a 24,000 unit crisis that, you know, 97 new people are moving here every single day of which 13% of them now add into the units needed. So I just, I'm wondering, is there an end in sight? And that kind of, I, I don't know the answer, but I know it's got to be multifaceted. And I wish we were paying more attention to workforce and workforce development and all the other things that the multifaceted solution requires while figuring out it hasn't come up yet. I like some of the stuff we do around Noah's and I dislike some of the others, but like, I haven't seen the one thing that I'm like, that's the new thing. That's the thing that's going to change everything and what we're doing. But I think part of the workforce development, too, is there are jobs out there, but people have to be able to access those jobs. And so I think by putting more focus on placing these units in areas of opportunity, I think we give people the chance to fill that job. Um, whereas if we're putting them in a part of town where they're where they have to commute, you know, 90 minutes to get to, to somewhere where there's a good job, that might not be something that's viable or, or feasible for them. So you know, part of it is getting them ready for the job, but part of them is literally putting them geographically in an area where they can get to that job, where they can access that job or that opportunity. So by being near transit, by being near centers of, of industry, um, I think we give people a better chance at that upward mobility. And that's not to say there's not another piece to it as well. But, um, and I like the fact that at the end of this, with the 9% deals, with these 4% deals, 
uh, with several other things we've done, we're still going to have $23 million in the housing trust fund. So it's not like we've blown through all this and we won't still be able to utilize other opportunities that come. And also I think that this will be a self-improving process. I think the people who were not approved or, you know, we, we vote on it in two weeks, so it's not a done deal, but the people who do not get approved, I think we'll be able to look at what deals got approved, which ones didn't and start to discern what makes a deal uh, better or worse in our eyes and using these scoring metrics and, and using the criteria that we're using, they'll be able to bring us better deals in the first place. So I think it will become more competitive and we'll be getting better stuff put in front of us year over year as people get accustomed to this new system. So the final topic that we had on the docket was Euros, Euros, heroes, I believe they're, they're called. Um, we had an interesting one where, um, show Mars, if you've never been to the government center, the only place to get food is Show Mars. And Show Mars is a, is a great restaurant, wonderful restaurant anyway. You can kind of get tired of eating it here, to you be honest. You get tired of eating anything. Yeah, exactly, if you, have, if you do it twice a day. Um, but um, it was interesting to learn over the last couple weeks, I think, that the lease they pay... Um, which was what thirty five hundred dollars a month. It was misstated several times. Thirty five hundred, but it's three thousand dollars a month. They made a request to um, to adjust the lease agreement we have with them down to five hundred dollars a month, which is well below market rate for uptown for what we have here. But then, so at first, when I heard all of this, uh, there's two years left on the lease. Plus, they would have the right to renew again after five years. I was uh, renew again for another five for years. another five years, which would be at that reduced five hundred dollar a month rate. I was immediately like, "Well, I like Showmars, but absolutely not. That's crazy." And then I learned a little more, particularly today, uh, about kind of the the sentiment of the fact that they are, from what I understand, um, only breaking even on this 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 location, and they are doing it and have done so for the last twenty years. Uh, but particularly after the twenty twelve DNC when they put all of the um, checkpoints inside the government center, their business volume went down by 30%, I think it was. And they have been breaking even for a long time now in the business. So they are they are trying to figure out a way how they can keep serving the, the government center um, and not have to close up shop. And I think that the one thing that kind of made me feel a little different about it, if this was any other circumstance with just that piece of information, I'd still say uh, free market rules. Let, let's let it, let it, let the uh, let it roll out as it, as it may. But this one was a little bit more for me about we have hired a company almost to exclusively serve as the vendor for um, for all of the workers in the government center. And then there's a few other people that come here and there, but that's the primary folks that are eating there and they are doing so without making a profit. And, um, it, you know, it's not like we're just a landlord who's pr providing them a space to serve in. They're really doing a service for us. So, uh, and the food and the quality of it and the service is just off the charts. Like if we went another route and said, oh, we're going to have like the Raleigh-based um, cafeteria, that is disgusting food. You've eaten it with me. I see your face right now. It's disgusting. Humans shouldn't eat that stuff, right? We have this wonderful Mediterranean hummus salads downstairs, right? Add chicken with Greek dressing. And now the Beyond Burger. And if, if you're there for breakfast, get two eggs over medium and the hash browns and wheat toast. It's called the Tark Special. It's not called that. It's just like the most regular <laughs> breakfast ever. Although it should be called the Tark because it's just 
plain and white toast. So we have proved it. It's wheat toast. We have proved it. It's slightly oh, brown. Yeah. Um, we approved it. That's going to be your new nickname. What, what Tark Wheat Toast Bakari. The, the, uh, thank you. The vote was 9-2. Some interesting jockeying towards the end to, uh, well, to, to make us, why vote once when we can vote twice? Uh, what, what did you think? Well, I think that, you know, a lot of us were saying, well, is now an opportunity to reevaluate how we provide that amenity to our, to our employees. Um, and I think ultimately what we landed on was we reduced the rate for the two years remaining in their, um, in their contract, but we, or their lease, but we eliminated that five-year tenant option that they'd have after that. We can decide. We'd have to strike a new lease essentially, which was the right move. Which we'd have to do anyway if we're lowering the rate. No, no. The original motion was if we changed it, it would change it in this one and it would allow them to execute for another five years at the $500. Rate. Right. But I'm saying if you have to amend the lease, you have to amend it anyway. So you can amend two parts of it. But yeah. in this case, that's what we're doing, changing the rate and changing the term. But I think it was a good compromise. I mean, they do provide a service to our employees. There've been many times where um, you or I have had you know, 20 minutes in between meetings or something. And you run down there and you grab something and it's quick and it's good and it's reliable. Um, so it is good to have that there. But I also think there's opportunities now with things like food trucks and with little, you know, pop up um, food carts and and things, all the different food halls that you see at a lot of places. I mean, when when a employer of choice, which we often claim we want the city to be, opens up a new headquarters or something there, they're probably creating a, an area where you've got multiple different styles of food to choose from um, in your cafeteria or in your in your place that the folks can eat. So. I think that we, we learned tonight that after Shomars closes each day at three, we can have whoever we want out there. So I think I'm going to actually try to work with the manager, especially on our zoning meeting nights where we have people sitting for five, six hours waiting for their case to come up. I'm going to see if we can experiment a little bit with having a food truck or two come out into the circle on 4th Street and park there so that po- people who realize they're 10 items down the agenda and it might be an hour and a half can go out there, get some food, either enjoy it on the plaza or enjoy it in the lobby of the, it's amazing. the building. They could make tens of dollars. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, you think them. about a full They're room be dying, falling over each other to serve that. You don't think a, a room of 250, 300 people, there'd be a, enough business there's to not, justify one. There's well, not zoning meeting that nights. Many people zoning meeting nights. There are, I'm not saying every meeting, but I think we could test it with a couple of zoning See, meetings. This is the problem I think some of our colleagues jumped a little too far over the tips of their skis on, which is like, if this thing was so, if, if this part of town we're in was so viable for for restaurateurs and things like, they'd be here. But I don't think, well, A, we just, not just, but last year uh, signed a lease with Little Village Grill, which is opening on the corner of McDowell and 4th Street down at the parking deck. They look, I think they're under construction now and should be open fairly soon. So somebody saw a business opportunity there. Um, and also I don't think food truck owners would even know that they could pull into the circle at the government center after three o'clock and that that would be okay. I mean, clearly they'd need our permission. Some, some I don't think we've awareness. ever sought that. But then so, the other thing is you now, and you if you outsource come at four this. o'clock, if I come from four to eight o'clock and I can catch some of the people leaving work who might want to grab something to take home or, but you have, have to, to work late. They want to manage grab something. that. Like it, somebody in the city staff that's paid money now has to manage something that literally if if I'm not saying this is what you're proposing, but I'm saying if we were like, oh, we're going to replace this 
and no longer show mores, and now it's going to be food trucks. Someone's got to be the food truck manager. Someone's got to be booking them, bringing them in, making sure that that you know that the timing is right. We have facilities managers that I, I mean, but now we're, but we're but taking. Again, a, there's I think there's a reason why the, the good the good, show mores breaks even the good thing about because they have to pay people to do all this stuff. The good thing about what we've done is that we've got two years where we know show mores is going to be there. We can. In their off hours, after 3 o'clock, we can start to experiment with some other stuff. We can start to brainstorm right. what the That's future right. might look like. We don't have to scramble, have a scramble drill totally, now totally. to figure out what we're going to do. We can't not have a food option there for, for our employees, and there are not many. And most of the other ones that are within a couple blocks of us, you have to go through another set of security. So you'd have to go in through security to the courthouse or security to the Fed to get into some of these other cafeterias. Um, which is the same deterrent to our employees going into those buildings as coming through our security is to people outside of our building, which has hurt Shomar's business. So I think we ended up in a good place. Everybody, everybody loves Shomar's and it shows. Here's my prediction. You ready? Whatever happens, we're one of two scenarios. One, we'll actually do research and like some good stuff and experiment in the next two. You years. know, I like to get into this food stuff. I know. And here's what we'll find out. Nothing else works, and we should be counting our lucky stars that show Mars here. Or two, well, we won't. We won't actually do any research. We won't actually try things, and we're going to be ba- faced with the same situation in like a year and a half or a year when it comes time to do the lease uh, renewal. Well, so here, here's the other thing. What else is happening right immediately adjacent to this building in the next couple of years? The redevelopment of Marshall Park. Mm. And so, when you're talking about a mixed use development over there, that's going to have a a lot of residents. B, a lot of office workers, and C, it's going to have some retail mixed in, which will probably be at least in part food and beverage establishments. Then you've got more customers, both daytime and nighttime, and you've got more food options. So two years from now, as they start to build that out and we know what it looks, it's going to look like, we might determine that the space that Showmars is in, they might say, you know what, thanks for those two years. This doesn't make a lot of sense for us anymore, particularly now that we have more competition across the street in the Marshall Park development. And we might say, hey, that gives us 4,200 square feet or whatever it is to do something entirely different. Maybe we don't need that food service there two, three, four years from now. I wonder if there's some way we can position the the checkpoints, the entry checkpoints. I thought about that during the meeting to today. Allow to, so you don't have to do that for Showmars. Yeah. There, there would be a way, I think, to create an entrance off the plaza side yeah that people could come in and out freely. And then you'd have security checkpoints from the thresholds of Showmars coming into the government center. So I thought about that too. That might be an option, probably an expensive option. Um, And again, maybe two years from now, that's something we undertake, but, but also maybe two years from now, we think of something entirely different. We want to put in that space. It's the safest, safest place to eat lunch in town. Yeah. (laughs) Well, probably the fed. Hmm. They got They're food cafeter- over there? Yeah, they have a cafeteria, but again, it's got security, so it's not somewhere you think about going. Yeah, um, I've been once or twice. It's good. It's far better than the courthouse. Courthouse is a cafeteria, not so bueno. Yeah, I can imagine. Nothing beats Showmars in this town, Larkin. Nothing, and it shows. Except for Chick Fil A, yeah, and the Hobby Lobby. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we did it, bud. We did it. Old episode old seventy. Seven zero in the books, man. It's an amazing feeling. 40,000. Did I say 40,000? 40,000. That's an amazing amount of listeners, man. We thank every one of you. We wouldn't be who we are today without you. And clearly, you wouldn't be who you are today without us.
you 40,000 plus out there, I'm going to tell you, I appreciate you. You're all right. You're all right, man. Episode 70. In the Over and out. Come win it, man.